0: first strike brought to you by the good folks at face the number one place to get your magic the gathering singles uh today i'm joined as usual by brian and rob but we also have a very special guest We've got connor bryant a member of the first strike nation who just recently won i think it was the latest unless there's been another one the last moto uh ptq that just took place this past weekend welcome to the
1: show bro- uh, connor how's it going
2: it's doing good, dude. I've had a pretty good weekend, so I'm pretty happy. Thanks for having me on.
1: Uh, for sure, for sure. Good to have you on.
0: Was it super ecstatic when uh, Brian talked about, uh, posted that you had one, uh, especially modern and uh, with the start. It's been it's been a few weeks. The start of the the moto, sorry, the modern PPTQs. People are playing like still Death Shadow early, and lots of different things that have been sort of popular and doing well uh, on the SCG circuit. And now you brought back something that always comes and just completely wins the tournament. You took Dredge and just owned it, right?
2: Yeah, Dredge was, um, I've played it since the Open in Syracuse. And uh, I like the deck a lot. If people don't have hate, it's, it's pretty great, honestly. And uh, it seemed like people were kind of late on hate. Like, Surgical is a good graveyard hate card, but not against Dredge. It's like just not enough. Um, and no one really had much else, so it was actually like a pretty solid tournament. Uh, I found some new tech with failure to comply
1: that Raf Levy kind of brought up to the worlds, uh, and that's really good in a lot of the matchups you're struggling. So I, I love the deck a lot. So was there any other tech? Was it pretty much a stock list except for that secret uh, tech
0: in the sideboard?
2: Yeah, it was pretty stock. Um, I see a lot of the dredge lists are trying to pick up driven to despair. Uh, I just didn't like it over Scourge Devil. So everything was pretty stocked besides like those like couple sideboard slots with it. So I actually had a hollow fountain in my sideboard to make the mana kind of work because you wanted like, a duel you could fetch for that cast both halves
1: of uh, failure and Reply. So that was some also a tech that I picked up from Ralph. So I'm not sure if everyone has has
0: played with uh, failure comply or, or seen or follow up on dredge, failure being one blue. As the split card, one blue, one colorless, return target spell to its owner's hand. And then uh, the other side is uh, one white sorcery. After uh, math to math, choose a card name and your next turn. Your opponents can't cast spells with the chosen name. Uh, what, what is it good for, for people who haven't been following on the, on the levy tech?
2: Um, so what's really nice about it is, like, against Storm, you can name Grape Shot. They, like, have a hard time killing you. Um, against, like, the Titan decks. You can kind of name like primeval titan or Scape shift, depending on like what actually kills you that turn. Um, it's good even like against like the blue red decks to name like Anger of the Gods to buy yourself a turn. So it, it's pretty flexible. And like drawing the front half is pretty reasonable too. Because like a remand and those like really like clock kind of racing matchups is really good. So did
0: so th- did it actually how many games did it help you uh, when you have three copies in the Cyber, three out of your 15, along with the Found, like you said, so four cards devoted to this?
2: <laughs> I mean, probably, probably, like, two or three matches. Um, I played against the blue-red through-the-breach deck in the top four, and I had, like, a sequence where, like, I flashed it back on three subsequent turns to, like, not die to his through-the-breach. I was able to, like, kill him while I, like, bought time. So
1: it's, it really does its job. It's an awesome card. I wouldn't play, board. Um, and you had mentioned that scourge devil. Uh, is that is that pretty standard? I missed the the part of you said, or
0: is it just your favorite? Uh, no,
2: it's pretty standard. Um, it's a pretty standard pick. You can kind of play like rally of the peasants, which is like the flashback trumpet blast, a like two plus or plus two plus 0 for your attackers, um, or scourge devil. Or people are playing driven to despair. I like scourge devil because you can rebuy a prized amalgam with it. Trick off on blood gas and stuff, and it's like a kind of crappy way to get your like prized models back, but it gets them back anyway. So I like it better than everything else.
0: Uh, Rob, you've been sort of, sort of grinding the uh, moto cues with with blue white and other shenanigans, uh, testing like. Uh, your your old favorite Ojitai. Like, have you seen much dredge uh, in in the most like in the modal metagame?
3: Uh, I'll play against so it like maybe once every ten to fifteen matches or something. So, I mean, that's probably right about average for modern. <laughs> like, if I if I play in a league, the only deck I might play twice is uh, Affinity, and everything else is kind of it's it's very random. <laughs> There's some leagues that are like it's really hard to get to 3-2 and there's other leagues where it's like you know just like a sweep to get 5-0. Um, so yeah, it's weird. But I, I mean, Blue-White doesn't have a great matchup against uh, Dredge unless they want to, and I don't want to. <laughs> so, <laughs> I don't play it with the frequency enough to to worry about it, but if I was playing in a PTQ or something now that this deck is taken down an event, I think people need to be a little more aware of their sideboard, which probably means that it's a uh, time to to dust off that affinity deck (laughs) for your next event and and, and bring that out. I would think.
1: Um, What do you think of the failure and comply tech? Yeah,
3: it's very weird uh, to me, but I, you're kind of like getting, um, I don't know, I guess for this deck, you're almost getting like time walks in a way for free. And so I guess when you're going off, it's pretty sweet and it's pretty low opportunity cost for you to do that right um since you don't really bring in a slew of cards or take out a slew of cards in any, in any given match so in any match where you like 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 connor said right where you would just rather be remanding them like almost playing a fish style game with your opponent um it seems sweet to just be able to, to, to advance them for free <laughs> uh, uh randomly by just like hitting it off a stinkweed did or something like that you have lots of ways to just like get it out of your hand when it's not good uh, there either so yeah it seems like sweet tech it'll be interesting to see like over the next year or so whether or not it lives or if kind of like the deck gets a little more refined and it kind of like subsides and then people figure out better ways to to attack the metagame if the metagame gets smaller but um i don't know it seems decent i mean it worked right so can't be the worst was this type of the archetype ever your style, though? No, no, yeah, <laughs> I'm not really into the whole um, play a deck that uh, if people want to beat it, they can just show up to an event and beat it. That's not really my jam because, like, you you really really need to understand the metagame to be able to do that. Like, I agree that this was probably a pretty good choice given how little Dredge is showing up in like the online leagues because I've been shaving like relics and you like the stock blue white deck usually plays two rest in peace and I've gone to zero and I just I just play the two relics now um, because it has broader use and it's like I I really only want rip against against dredge anyways so um, if people are doing that and then just keeping their league deck and jamming just going into the ptq with it then yeah you're just gonna get like some free wins where some guys like like me (laughs) Shaved, shaved a couple cards too many and now they went from like being a 55% favorite to being like a, a 40% uh, like underdog right um, and so that, that's a pretty good place to be and Affinity sees sees the same thing right but I typically stay away from Burn, Affinity and Dredge just for that if you just like play it on the week where people have like ran into it more than likely uh, in a leak, and they're just like I'm sick of losing to this deck I'm never losing to it <laughs> when, when I go into this event then uh, I don't know. It feels bad. So I like, to, I like to be a little more... I don't know. A little less susceptible to, to the metagaming, I guess.
1: Alright.
0: Um, Brian, what did you think about Dredge? And does that blue-red deck that everyone's talking about with the nine zero 0 really... Does it tickle your fancy here?
4: Uh, I've played something similar in the past, except it, this was, like, years ago, except we had Tron in the deck as well, so you could actually cast your Cools, uh along with... Uh, is it Sigbit? deck's fine. I mean, I, I think it's like, it was kind of invalidated while Twin was around. That was just a better, you know, set of blue-red things to be doing. But now that Twin's gone, I don't know, I like the look of this deck. It, it kind of is, um, if you listen to the game podcast last week, Jerry and I talked a lot about Modern. And we talked about how uh, it may be a futile undertaking to try and control a game of Modern for more than just a couple turns. Um, this deck dodges that problem, right? It tries to set up the early game in its favor and, and control things until it's just like, "All right, I win now." On, on, usually, on turn five is a very plausible time for them to do so. Um, so, yeah, I like the look of this deck. It's, it's kind of adding the right kind of wrinkles um, that a modern control deck needs to add in order to be successful. And I was a twin guy when twin was around, so this is kind of falling into that same that same box. So I could get behind this deck for sure.
1: I just feel like I've, like like you said you've played it before, I just feel like I've, I've actually played an exact version
0: of this and maybe like it, it's, it should be more in favor now because Twin has gone and people haven't picked it up since, but I, I just remember playing this list, maybe the Tron versions, and even Tronless versions, and I, don't I see probably, any, like, I probably showed cards. it to you like
4: 10 years ago, like that's how it went. like you probably were bothering me for a deck, and I was like, oh, I'm playing this right now, and you played it. I guarantee, if we look back through like our uh, Facebook Messenger conversations, we can probably find it from seven years ago. That'll be your task, and you can post it in First Strike Nation and show that we've been talking about this deck forever. But uh, yeah, this is this is certainly you know cards that have been around. Even if you go back to the first modern Pro Tour, through the breach, Emercall was very much a pillar of the format then. Um, it was in some you know weirdo looking decks now. It was cloud post basically back then. Um, but yeah. I, this deck has always been on the fringes. Um, if, do I have a reason why it's coming to prominence now? No, I don't. But that's actually what Modern's all about, is that there's a lot of decks that are always just like lurking below the surface, like Dredge, um, like the deck that I've been talking to people a lot right now, um, the Amulet deck. Like Amulet might still be good. I think it's a deck that's been unrefined, untouched, untested for a very long time, and we were all just like, well, Summerbloom's gone, Amulet's not good anymore. But you watch people who play Amulet regularly continue to succeed. It continues to put up results despite having very low metagame representation. So that tech might just like secretly be insane and just no one's putting time into it. So, uh, yeah, modern continues to be interesting and invo- evolve in interesting ways. And, uh, you know, now Connor's got to prepare for a modern Pro Tour and who knows what that's going to bring. Like maybe Rob talked about the format homogenizing a little. Well, if it happens, it's going to happen around a Pro Tour. That's always how it's been in the past. Um, but it's also been spurred on by bannings every time and kind of, you know, a, a trimming of the format. I don't think that's going to happen here. Maybe there'll be an unban. And for Connor, someone who's preparing for that Pro Tour, that's the best thing you can hope for because then you can at least start to think metagame. Like the last modern Pro Tour I played, they unbanned Wild Nakadal and Bitter Blossom. And we, you know, played a ton of games, realized Bitter Blossom was basically meaningless, and realized Nakadal was actually pretty good, which doesn't make a lot of sense now the way things shook out, but um, basically at the time it was a pretty good bet that a lot of people would play it, and a lot of people did. It ended up being 25% of the metagame. Um, so you can hope for an event like that where like, I don't know, what, what do we think is the most apt candidate for unbanning at this point? Probably something like Braid Elf is the one that catches my eyes. No! Saying things no, like, oh, no that's the only reasonable card. That card's, not, no, that card's not that good. It's not that good in the context of, of current modern. Like, it, it's totally fine. It would probably be like a two of and Jund, and Jund would still not be that great. And it's not going to really spur on any new archetypes. The only thing is, like, something weird, like, I don't know, some kind of weird cascade deck, like Swans or something goofy. Um, and <laughs> I, don't, I don't think you're afraid of Swans, so it should be okay.
3: I'd rather them unban Jace than, than Bloodred Elf.
4: Well, so Jace is a point of contention. I. I honestly don't know if Jace is safe. I'd like them to unban Jace too, but if we're just talking about like what I think their most likely move is, I could see Bloodred Elf being it because it doesn't cost a billion dollars. It's kind of like more innocuous than a card like Jace which was, you know, banned in standard, a flagship card in um legacy and, you know, has been on the sidelines since Modern started. So you know, I'm just spitballing here, but if something like that happens, Bloodbrain is unbanned, then you could predict a field of twenty percent Jund, and maybe you could start making some decisions based on that. Uh, and I bet, you know, going back to Amulet, big mana decks are pretty good against Jund. So whatever. This is all hypothetical and a million miles down the road, but just something to watch out for as we get closer to the modern Pro Tour.
1: Um, Rob, like,
0: what do you expect people like in like we talked about in standard how? People have been adjusting far slower than than the online metagame. Uh, where do you see, like, in real life? Would you, if you were to play in a real life PPTQ, do you expect people to actually react and have more graveyard hate than usual? In real life,
3: no, I don't. I don't think so. I think that, like, it's just the the decks in modern cost so much money that people especially at the PBT level, people have like their their collection and their availability of whatever decks they can build. And it's usually like a pretty small subset. Like there's not a lot of people in your local group that can just build whatever they want, <laughs> whatever they want. So like your affinity guy is going to come and he's going to play affinity and your infect guy is going to come and he's going to be play infect. And then you might have like someone that, you know, normally plays Zoo that's like, ah, you know what? I'm just going to play mono red. Uh, instead, this week because they're like they're close enough that they kind of have the right overlap for those two decks, right? And you're the Tron guy is going to show up, so um yeah, you probably just need to spread your sideboard. <laughs> thin but like at an event like that, that that's a good event to bring uh, a deck like Dredge or uh, Affinity too. But it'll depend on like that LGS, right? Like, does that, does that LGS already have a Dredge guy, and is that Dredge guy like usually four owing? Because if he is, then people have like their two Rips and a Relic or whatever in their board, right? And they're they're ready where that LGS doesn't have uh, a dredge guy, then like you know half of the tournament's going to come up with probably you know very underadequate uh cyborg eight for a deck like dredge, so I, I don't know it's like the 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 real life local metagame is a very weird beast <laughs> it requires a lot of context and you kind of need to be in the know uh to figure out what's going on but I, I found that actually like a lot of store owners are very proud to talk about. What's winning at, at their tournament? So, if you're interested in playing a PPDQ, it's it's a pretty good idea to stop in the shop like that week and just chat up the owner and see, you know, what, what people are usually bringing to his or her um, modern event, uh, you know, and, and what's winning. That'll be a good good metric for what deck you want to bring if you're so lucky to uh, to be able to choose from a, a wide selection. Uh,
0: back to you, Connor. Uh, you talked about. Um... Well, before the show, you talk about the the nine zero list. Uh, what would you recommend someone uh, that has an upcoming PPTQ to pick up your list, or, or just to try that try out that through the breach deck that you seem might be really good?
2: Um, so dredge is not for the faint of heart. Like, when you lose to a rest in peace, it's pretty like soul crushing. Um, so uh, if you haven't played dredge before, I probably wouldn't pick it up just because like between the operations of the deck and paper and like losing a graveyard hate, it's a pretty long day uh, if it's not going so well for you. Play whatever you're comfortable with, honestly. I think that's like the biggest edge you can gain in modern is just play the deck you know. If you've been playing Affinity since 2011, play it, like, just keep doing what you're doing
1: uh, and just have good sideboard plans, really. I think that experience is the most valuable thing in modern by a lot. Uh, when it was first spoiled uh, for Ixalan... Ashes of the Abhorrent were...
0: Uh, I, I saw people on either Twitter or on Facebook saying like, oh, this, this is going to bone dredge players, but, but White already had Rest in Peace. Uh, what type of impact do you think Ashes will have?
2: That's the card that you can't flashback spells, right? From the graveyard.
0: Uh, players can't cast, uh, for, for the exact same cost, one White, one colorless enchantment. Players can't cast spells from graveyards or activate abilities of cards in graveyards. Whenever a creature dies, you gain one life.
2: So that, wouldn't, that doesn't shut off, like, Bloodgast or Prize Amalgam. It would just hit, like, Haunted Dead and surge str- Devil and, like, Confirate. So, as Rest in Peace, um, it just seems a little bit worse than Rip, like, all-around life gain, which doesn't seem super high-impact to me. So I think it's going to be, like, about the same.
4: Zero chance that card sees any play whatsoever. I'll save it for you now. <laughs> just zero chance. For, like rest in peace exists, and no one's going to play that card.
3: I agree. I agree. Th- there would have to be like, uh, like, could you see this maybe getting played in the dredge mirror, where you can still dredge, but you're. Oh no, you. It's just players can't, right? Yeah, I don't know. Yeah, this card seems terrible. <laughs> Never mind.
2: <laughs> yeah, you would just want ley line but like any, dredge, I mean, any yeah, radar yeah. mirror ley lines or whatever. So.
0: Yeah, I'm trying to find a way where this
3: is better in modern. I okay, I'm just gonna. <laughs> oh, I, just I,
1: know
3: gonna I know what it game does. I know what it does. Car, I figured it out. It allows you to gain infinite life with murderous red cap and kill your opponent at the same time. Yeah, we figured it out.
1: <laughs> cool. <laughs> uh, we got there. Um,
0: uh, Connor, how how much moto do you do you grind, and how how much standard have you played?
2: Um, I play mostly, like, the big tournaments on Moto, um, I mostly rely on, uh, actual theory crafting, and things like that, but, uh, I play a decent amount, play, like, all the Moto PTQs and stuff, so, uh, not, I don't devote my life to it, but I do it enough.
1: Have you jammed much standard, uh, some of the later the latest standard?
2: Uh, yeah, I played in, a uh, Moto PTQ probably,
1: like, two or three weeks ago, and, uh, I've been paying attention to the tournament results, and Brian and I have been talking about it a little bit too. Oh. Which will lead to uh, GP Washington. Uh, Brian in the First Strike Nation
0: I've been talking about and his uh, green-white ramp list I was intrigued by, and then uh, when I finally saw it, it finished, like it was fighting for top eight. It won. Oh, no, it wasn't even fighting for top eight. Actually, the the pilot... It was already locked, no matter what, and he was fighting for seeding. I believe he probably finished first with the win. He beat a mono red deck. Um, a mono red. I was watching the match and chatting with Rob, but Rob wasn't really paying attention, and uh, I was just like, the, "The mono red guy had six cards under Bullmat career, and I just wanted him to crack it." <laughs> and Um, It just felt like I have to go back and watch the game again. It just felt like he he really waited really long and really didn't want to crack it and didn't give himself a chance to win. Uh,
1: Then he went on to to finish second. So, Brian, how how close was his list to yours? Uh, His list was better than mine. I I
4: made a, a pretty fatal mistake. I played Approach, which, like, theoretically... I knew why I was playing Approach, and I considered the possibility that I shouldn't be playing Approach. But I thought that some matchups were just unwinnable without it, and I still stand by that. I think, like, Mono Red becomes much more difficult. Uh, Things like... I mean, I happen to play against Black-White-Anointed Procession. Like, you can't beat decks like that unless you have Approach in your deck. Um, But, as I list these decks, which, you know, didn't really see a lot of play in this tournament, there's the flaw in my assumption... I should have just played the more streamlined version and gotten rid of Approach, and I think I would have just been way better off. Not to say my deck was bad, because a bunch of people played an identical list did very well. Um, and we're only talking, we were four cards off in the main, so I, I mean, they're four, that's meaningful, for sure. But it's, it's not the end of the world. The, when you're doing the same um, overall game plan, you can, you can make up for some suboptimal card choices. If the game plan's on point, and it definitely was for this tournament. Um, me, personally, I did absolutely horribly. and my actual worst GP of my entire life. Um, I, I, I can't really tell you what happened. I mean, the deck has a lot of inherent variance. I caught the bad end of that. I found myself in a spot where I let my emotions get the best of me. And uh, my, me my opponent Drew, I should have just conceded. Uh, but I was upset with the fact that he didn't. Which was a little silly and a little childish of me. I should have thought about my tournament as a whole. Putting myself in the draw bracket was not where I wanted to be. I I should have just scooped when he said no. Um, But I was tilted, and you know, no one's immune to tilt. I certainly, you know, when I was younger, I was a tilt monster. Like I was the kid who, when he struck out in little league, yelled at the umpire. And when I played football, I was in fights all the time. Like I just, I, I wanted to win at all costs, and I hated losing. And nothing made me angrier than losing. And it's something that over the years I've, I've worked out of my personality to a very large extent, but it still pops up from time to time. And, you know, I'm, I'm not trying to make an excuse. It's frustrating and I need to do a better job controlling it, but we are who we are to some extent. And I think like that kind of fire is part of what makes me very good sometimes, like just finding that mode where you refuse to lose and, you know, you'll... you'll sit there until you find the absolute optimal line and give yourself a chance to win a game that nobody else could win, that comes from the same place, I think. Um, but in this instance, it worked against me. I, uh, I definitely lost my cool, and it cost me throughout the length of the tournament. Had I just conceded, I, I don't know what would have happened. I mean, I could have just played faster, too. That's something that... I mean, we, we played some very long games to the point where we almost decked each other in game two, so it was just one of those things where the two decks bouncing off each other led to that kind of situation. Um, but yeah, tough tournament. I think I made a good deck selection. I think Green-White-Ramp, if you're still playing, uh, it's an interesting choice. There's good, good ways to deal with it. You know, all the blue decks, if they ever are just like, all right, that's enough ramp, they just play Summary Dismissal, and that's such a backbreaking card for you. Even, you know, the biggest innovation in ramp this week was Oblivion Solar as a way to fight through Negate. Uh, and still do your ramp thing, and it was awesome. Oblivion Solar was absolutely great. Uh, But when people start playing Summary Dismissal, especially decks that also have access to Torrential Gearhulk, things get very, very complicated. I don't remember if the list that won the Euro GP had access to Summary Dismissal. I think it may have. Um, But, yeah, I, I think it was a great choice for this tournament. I don't know if it's still a great choice going forward. It's one of those things where it was a little off the radar, too. Um, you know, I think top players definitely knew about it, but your, your, your earlier rounds definitely got some weird looks as you let off with green-white ramp. Um, but yeah, it was a failure of a tournament. Uh, I think a good instance of deck selection. It kind of sums up my experience with this format, to be honest with you. Like, I really felt like I was onto something very early. I was kind of on ramp when no one else was. I still think ramp's great. I mean, finally, it takes to the end of the format for ramp to top eight of gp but here it is um and you know i've been kind of plugging away at it from the beginning and i think i identified a point of power in the format um but for whatever reason things just never really broke my way um and and i'm sure a lot of it is my own fault i'm sure i missed a lot of things and maybe i got too pigeonholed on green red ramp but i could have been on green white ramp way back in the day that might have made a difference who knows but uh I guess as much as this format has been a good format, I am happy to finally put it behind my, myself because I haven't found a lot of success in it.
1: Uh, the, the winner of the Euro
0: GP had, had two summary dismissals in his sideboard. Um, yeah, I didn't, I didn't know that Oblivion Sower was, uh, was the answer to that. Um, do you think like, it's, it's going to be green-white moving forward, Brian, or do you see like a shift back to green-red at any point?
4: Well, we've only got a few weeks left of this format, right? So, what's it like going forward? It probably has dinosaurs, to be honest with you. Like, that's, that's the future of Ramp. You lose the Soul Lands, you lose the Eldrazi. But I know I was talking with Jerry the other day. He's excited about the Wrath Dinosaur in the context of Ramp, which I, I get. Um, you know, I had a little trepidation. It's like, if, the, if this deck couldn't really get the job done with Soul Lands and Ulamogs, does it get the job done with dinosaurs? I don't know, but a couple of these Dinosaurs are really powerful, particularly the Naya one. Um, But I think that's going to find more of a home in a... If you recall old Jund decks, like Rakdos Return Jund decks, where they did ramp a little bit, but that wasn't the primary basis of their plan. That's what I see these Dinosaur decks looking looking like in the future. They have the 4-5 guy, which is really good, the one that draws a card. They have the 5-5 life gain one, which, you know, in context with the, the huge trample guy that puts multiple dinosaurs into play, if you ever hit two of those, you gain 20 life on the spot. Like, that's pretty insane. Um, so th- there's a lot of really interesting stuff going on with, with dinosaur-style ramp decks. I don't know if they will be full-on Hour of Promise, um, but we'll see. We'll see what happens. There are, the, the card's super powerful. I mean, it, it's seen playing modern. So uh, we'll see what happens going forward. I would be surprised if it's totally out of the format come rotation.
0: Um, still on the, on the GP, I, I thought it was really impressive that, um, Matt Severa, someone that you linked me to, uh, earlier at, at one of the GPs, Brian, where like he had top 16 with Mardu vehicles and his list also top aided. And he's been playing this forever. I think he played it at the PT because I think he beat. My boy Hain, but I don't know if it was draft or actually if it was standard, but he was playing that. He was been playing Martin forever, and it's one of those like, I don't know, cool things to see, cool narrative that like a guy has perfected this deck or played it so much that he's like the master of it. And he's done a lot of adjustments that that we've talked about, especially you, Brian, like moving the Gideons completely to the sideboard. Like all four are now in the sideboard. Now, he, in his list, what's cool is he's got four Thought Knots series instead. Um, the one thing that always, like, scared me about his deck list, even from the, the GP, uh, the one that, uh, where he had multiple copies do well, is, like, the four Aether Hubs and four Spire of Industry. I always find, like, I end up not being able to cast my spells as much. Uh, what do you think about that, uh, Brian?
4: I think that he understands the archetype probably better than anyone on the planet. Right now, he is willing to kill the Sacred Cows, which is important, this late into a format. Um, where everyone else is just making this assumption where, like, I can't go on without Gideon. He's like, nope, this card's actually not good anymore. And he's right. It's not good in a lot of matchups. It's not good against something like Teamer. And uh, he adapted as he should have for the format. And you think about, like, we talk about Green-White-Ramp coming to prominence. Well, holy shit, he's set up for Green-White-Ramp already, too. He's a week ahead of the format and already adapted. So, and he could go even further if he wanted to. He could get uh, Warping Whale into his sideboard very easily if, if green-white green, ramp continues to be a problem. So, you know, it's something we talked about from the beginning, right? Mardu is infinitely customizable, uh, and he customizes better than anyone on the planet. So he's, he's rewarded with the W here. Um, I guess he, earlier in the week, he sent Jerry the list and was like, if you want to win the GP, here's the list you're supposed to play. And Jerry's just like, yeah, okay. Because uh, we've both been hating on Mardu lately. Like, I, don't, I didn't see it. I don't really understand why it's advantaged in the format. And, like, base Mardu isn't. But if you understand the format well enough and are, are willing to make these kind of you know wholesale changes, then yeah, Mardu can be you know the GP winning deck.
0: <laughs> I love it, uh, Rob. I mean, this was our first love. This was like the first love of the first Strike Nation. This was the genesis of First Strike Nation. First Strike Nation would not exist without the, the Mardu list and the PowerPoint uh, presentation that uh, the slide that uh, Brian had and, and Rob like. We've been messing about Teamer all along. Was Mardu what we should have just been iterating on ourselves?
3: No, I I actually think that uh, this deck doing well this week is kind of uh, a fluke, just given how the
1: metagame looks. So, like,
3: if you want to beat Teamer, you should try to go over it. Um, Going under it doesn't really seem to work. Uh, because, like, Long Tusk Cub and then Virtuoso just make it, it, like, there's some of their draws are just so annoying to get under them. So, like, e- even like Mono Red has, like, I-, I think the matchup's not, like, terrible for Mono Red, but, like, some draws the teamer gets, you're just like, yeah, I can never, there's just, like, no way I can ever win this game. So, you see all these ramp depth decks coming out of the woodwork, and you see them doing well, like, especially the, um, like, Brian was alluding to, like, green-white ramp kind of. Uh, coming into its own uh, this week. And like, yeah, if you want to beat green-white ramp, it makes sense that you want to put a quick clock on them, which is like Scrappy, Toolcraft Exemplar, Heart of Kirin, and you want to disrupt them. So that's like taking out Gideon and putting in Thought Knots here, which actually makes that whole four Spire, four Aether Hub um, base a lot more palatable, because they need the colorless sources, and they don't need the double white, which was that was really the thing that the Aether Hubs and the Spires punished you for, was like you can't cast Gideon on curve and if you're not casting Gideon on curve and Mardu I'm like well, what are you even playing the deck for right and that's when you saw people like start to pull back on aether hubs and start putting in like more um more shambling vents or more needle spires or more basics or or whatever and going up to 25 lands or playing like 24 and two caravans so that they can make sure that they could hit their their turn four Gideon and like you just remove all that nonsense by putting four thought knots here and there right um, I've kind of tried a list similar to this, and I didn't have good success. But that was a way earlier uh, in the format when there was a lot more blue decks, and like you know, getting your thought knots here uh, countered and playing kind of a slower game with a little bit more disruption and less just like if I stick this four drop, the game's over. Um, is is just like not as good uh, as it is now, right? Like thought knots here is like very very disruptive uh, in the current meta game, and. It, it steals cards like Bristling Hydra and stuff that, that's kind of annoying for for Mardu to deal with. So, yeah, it makes sense. Do I think, like, you know, if I had a an event to play, would I play this list? I, I don't think I would. I'd be really surprised if, like, the local metagames or even the online metagame, like, really bent towards how the, the DCGP kind of ended up. But, I mean... Yeah, it just goes to show that, like, yeah, if you stick with your deck and you really know what's going on and you try and tweak it to what you think the meta game's going to be, you know, you have a reasonable shot of being correct eventually. <laughs> Matt Sever seemed to be correct a couple times, so he definitely knew how to take Mardu in a direction that was at least reasonable given what he thought the meta was going to be. I mean, he was right. He got heavily rewarded. <laughs>
0: Connor, we were talking about like the, the new card that uh, we all agree that will not see play in modern. Are you one of those type of people who check on the, up, the all the latest spoiler cards and think about what's next, what's standard, what's modern? Is there some card that you're really excited about?
2: Uh, yeah, I try to stay up on the spoilers uh, quite a bit. I always enjoy spoiler season. Uh, there's a couple of cards I like. I actually randomly really like that. Five and a red enchantment. It's like Sunbird's Invigation or something. It's uh whatever you cast a spell, you look to at the top X where X is that spells converted mana cost, and then you can cast a card from there that costs X or less. Um, it's a weirdo card. They don't really print cards like that very often, and it kinda doesn't have like the obvious drawbacks besides being like six mana. So it's just like a really
1: powerful weirdo card that is kind of cool. So I like that card a lot. Hmm. So you can basically, you can start playing two spells. Um, Wow, that that is really interesting. Yeah, Summer's
0: Invocation, I have it in front of me, one red, five colorless. Uh, Yeah, it seems pretty sweet. Anything else that you're excited to uh, jam?
2: Uh, I like a lot of the Merfolk cards. Uh, I think they're pretty interesting. Like that two and a blue uh, enchantment that makes Merfolk where you play a Merfolk. Um, I think that card's pretty cool. Uh, Merfolk is another like pet deck of mine that I really like, so I like seeing a lot of new prints for that deck. So it'll be interesting to see if there's any changes, uh, after Ixlon comes out. Plus, I really like the new, the new Cavern of Souls land that'll make a lot of modern mana bases a lot better. If you want to play like five color humans or slivers or whatever
1: tribal deck you want to play, now it has a lot better mana, which is pretty nice. Yeah, yeah unclaimed territory. Whoa, <laughs> that will be pretty sweet. Yeah, yeah, I I look forward to hearing from you if, like, any of these
0: merfolk's are actually good enough to unseat some of the uh, current playables. The
2: the current lists are pretty tight, though, so um, you're seeing there might be a chance? Yeah, I really like the new... It's, like, I can't remember the name, but it's the one blue-blue for a 2-2, and abilities and spells that target a merfolk to control cost two more, um, and he's a merfolk. So it kind of takes, like, that Kira, the Great Glassbitter spot but it actually has synergy with your Lords and your Silver deal Adepts and things like that. So it's a pretty, I think it's a pretty solid upgrade all across the board. Um, it's probably more important in Legacy, actually, where there's a lot more Abrupt Decay, where Kira just dies to Abrupt Decay. Uh, so it'll be kind of close to Modern, but I like that guy a lot, too.
1: So it'll be interesting to see what other prints come out of this set. Um, you qualified for how many Pro Tours is it going to be uh, for
0: the, the next one that you just qualified? How many have you played so far?
2: I, this will be my first Pro Tour, uh, uh, this, and I'll be qualified for Rivals of Exile. So that's the Modern Pro Tour in uh, Bilbao, Spain. So I'm pretty excited to get my first PT under my belt.
4: Carl, you're right to use it. Everything's muted, but what he's trying to say is that that sounds super exciting, <laughs> and he's totally stoked for you. But the question that everyone is dying to ask is: now that you have uh, placed first in a PTQ, do you intend on changing your name to Placed Ginger? Because that seems like the the optimal name for you going forward. And we could just collect all the gingers into the First Strike Nation. We already have the misplaced ginger. That's time for the placed ginger.
2: I I like my current Twitter name. I think Connor the Pure is like a a decent MTG-themed Twitter name. But Placed Ginger is not bad either.
4: Yeah, I, I got to see ginger this weekend in D.C., um, I, I placed him several times across the room. I'm like, oh, there's Ginger, um, but he I, was I really think
3: Ginger this week wasn't he. What's that? He was
4: last place, Ginger. Last I think, place, Ginger? Ginger. I might have taken last place. <laughs> I, don't know if, I don't know if I left that open for him. Uh, otherwise, he might have been. Um, but yeah, the time has come for a placed Ginger in the First Strike Nation, and uh, I'd like to see you take on that mantle. I'll
1: do my best. I'll see what I can do for you, Brian.
4: Good um before
0: i mute myself i guess um, <laughs> i wanted to know like how long, how many years have you been playing competitively like how long have you been striving for for this goal of making it to the pt
2: um i started playing like more competitively when rtr came out uh i'm pretty young i'm 23 so uh i started playing like late high school and then played all throughout college and uh i've done like I've gone like eleven four 4 to GP and like all those kind of like staple kind of finishes. But this is like my first real breakthrough. And I've been playing pretty serious for a while. Um, I kind of tagged on to Brian's coattails when I was pretty young. I've known Brian for a few years now. And he's kind of been my sensei on this journey along with uh, Max Brown.
1: So. Uh, I mean, I, that's sweet. I, I,
0: I've i got uh, so – it brings my, back so many memories of me like trying really hard to to win – these uh, old style PTQs and feeling like it's impossible after years of trial um, until I finally got there. Uh, I'm, so, I'm so happy for you, I'm really stoked for, for your uh, PT. And I'm really excited to see what you end up bringing because obviously you have a wealth of, of modern experience under your belt and it'll be exciting to see if you do bring in Dredge, something else or like a tweaked Merfolk list. So, so really excited to see what you bring to the table,
2: Connor. Thanks, yeah. I um, have a lot of time to prepare, so I kind of want to set aside some time and learn Amulet and really work on that deck. Um, like Brian said, everyone who plays it wins, so there must be something there. Uh, and I think that's a deck that could really use a lot of tuning, and if you invest time, it'll pay you off. So. And I've got five months, and I have no other terms to prepare for, so I've got plenty of time to jam some modern.
0: All right. I I hope you you get yourself ahead of the curve. Like, thanks you so much for coming on the show, giving us like some dredge info. So for people who might be playing dredge who wants to use the same cyborg tech in their upcoming tournament, um, seems like Connor worked for Connor. He thinks it's legit. Uh, Yeah, good luck, and I'm sure we'll have you on the show sometime in the near future, Connor. Good luck.
1: Cool. Thanks so much. Five months. (laughs) (laughs) Take care. Right. That was Connor. Bryant, the last, uh, the most recent Moto PTQ
0: winner. Those are obviously extremely hard to win, in my opinion. So, much congrats to him. Uh, back to the GP, a topic that has come up on Twitter. Um, and I feel like maybe we've touched upon it. Uh, I'm trying to find the retweet. I don't have it in front of me. But uh, basically, John Robert, <laughs> Robert retweeted John Finkel, tweeting back, retweeting uh something a player who talked about how he felt like he got uh screwed out of a top 8 because due to not having buys and having worse tiebreakers uh he had to play instead of being locked in and be able to draw into the top 8 he had to the play basically the last round he lost went home completely heartbroken and uh because some players don't know especially if it's their first GP or or if they've never gone close to top eighting or haven't really understood how tiebreakers work when you when you have buys you actually have perfect tiebreakers and whereas if you play the first couple of rounds and your opponents like your opponents basically have to also do really well for your tiebreakers to do well which isn't the case because and and they've already got worse tiebreakers from losing to you Um, so having buys is not just like the victories themselves are a huge advantage, but also because your tiebreakers are really, really sweet, um, all throughout. Um, Rob, what's
3: your, what's your take on this? Like, do you think it's unfair? Yeah. So yeah. Ha- getting a buy is like playing against someone that wins out in the tournament and you have a win against them. That's kind of like how, how it affects your breakers. And I think that it is fair. <laughs> like, you know, they, they, set up, they set up this system, right? Where it's like, okay, if you achieve X goal, you'll get one buy. If you achieve X goal, you know, whatever the next goal is, you'll get two buys. And if you're a gold pro or a platinum pro, then you'll get three buys, right? And it's kind of an incentive for people that play a lot of GPs or high-level magic to, to do a lot of that in a year so they can get to this threshold so they have an easier road to qualify for the PT, right? It's like I've put in all this work and now that I've gotten to this point, it's easier for me to get to where I'm actually trying to get to, right? Which is qualify for the PT. Usually if you don't have enough points for even one buy, you're probably not someone that's really trying to get to the pro tour, right? You're obviously not playing a lot of magic at all. Maybe you're playing a lot of magic online. And I, I do think that they should link your real life, like DCI and Planeswalker points to your online account. Like, you you already get PT invites from your online account, so I'm not sure why you can't earn Planeswalker points from them. Uh, The online community gets a little bit screwed there. So, I mean, that's definitely something to to fix. But, um, yeah, I mean, in the thread from Twitter, it seemed like people just want to eliminate buys completely, and they're fine with that. And it's just like, you know, there's literally no incentive at all for anyone like me or even a little bit below or a little bit above to ever play at an LGS uh, if that happens, right? Because, like, if I just, like, play casually at an LGS, I'll pick up, like, three, 400 points throughout the year, and that's usually, like, enough with going to, like, four or five GPs to get, like, a buy or two, depending on, kind of, like, you know, where, where you ended up. And, like, that that's fine for me. That's about how much magic, you know, I can allot to play. But if it's, like, hey, you get no bonus from planeswalker points at all so like, I, I just i literally have zero incentive to play magic casually if you will <laughs> and it's like I, i'll just i'll just stop right so i think there's a probably a lot more people in that boat that are grinders that play a lot of magic and are heavily invested than there are of like people who don't play a lot of magic who just like randomly did very well and are are like out on tiebreakers right like if this guy was out on tiebreakers uh, going into, like, just the last round, he probably got his losses very early on day one, right? So, I mean, you have to look at, like, where, like, where did the other people who made it and he didn't, where did they take their losses, right? Because, like, if that guy took his loss in round four and then beat you, then it's kind of like a feel bad. But, like, if you took your losses in round two and round four and he took his losses in round eight and round nine, like, I, I just don't feel bad for you because it, like, wasn't going to affect you Anyways, right? And you can blame what you want, but, I mean, if you don't like it, then <laughs> take your losses in later rounds. <laughs> That'll give you better breakers. Or, uh, you know, play more Magic and and and, uh, and like have the right threshold to get buys or play a grinder the night before um, and win it and get buys, right? Like winning a GPT the, on the Friday of the GP is, like, not very complicated thing to do especially if you like have a deck where you think you're in contention for top 8 during the main event it should be very easy for you to to like 5-0 a a GPT right? Um, So yeah it's just like it's kind of a weird argument and I don't think that it has any merit and I don't I don't sympathize (laughs) with people who have 0 buys that that are out on breakers but I'm sure Brian's gonna (laughs) have a different point of view so I'm interested to hear it (laughs) I'm surprised I thought you would
1: Yeah.
0: Yeah, you took the other side that I, I predicted you would take. <laughs> uh, That'd be take.
4: My first GP ever, I had zero buys. I missed top eight on tiebreakers. I lost round one. It was, it was terrible. Um, G- GP Atlantic City, I had zero buys. I top eighted. Like, to say people are invalid, like they're, they're not competitive in GPs because they don't have their requisite number of buys, it's just a fallacy. Like there's people who don't have time to play live magic.
3: Um, yeah, Brian, and, if you lost round three of that first GP, like were you going to make top eight? Probably not, right? Probably not, no. No, so it doesn't matter that you lost round one or round three. You lost the first round in which you played.
4: It, it doesn't that's what matter. Got you. <laughs> it, it doesn't matter in that regards. But the fact is that there's ways to give incentives to people that don't rely on shaking up the equality of a tournament. And I don't understand why we're playing like these gated tournaments with buys in them. It just doesn't make a lot of sense to me. There, there's not many, um, you know, other competitive endeavors that embrace that kind of style. There's stuff like, you know, getting a buy from the wildcard round in, in football. And, um, you know, you could even argue home court advantage to some extent is, is something you earn via previous performance. Um, but three wins in a 15 round tournament is an incredibly substantial advantage. Um, and it just doesn't have to be there. Like, this is an excuse for cheapness because if you really want to incentivize these people to have the opportunity to get results, well, you make the travel stipend better and you bring back GP appearance fees. And, and then these people can go to more GPs. Like, that's the reward you get. The fact that you're able to participate more readily. Uh, not the fact that you're giving a competitive advantage in those tournaments. It, it just feels outmoded, outdated. I don't understand why we're still doing it. Like, is it the end of the world? No. The tournament, it, it works fine. The tournament structure is fine, and we've been doing it for many years, and we'll probably continue it under under it for many years, so I really don't see this changing. But I think it's not conducive to the stated goal of keeping the same players on camera all the time because... I mean, look at, the, look at this top eight, right? Like, how many Platinum pros are in this top eight? One, right? It's not like the Platinums ended up there. I think there, there's one Platinum and one Gold in Severa. Severa may be Platinum. I, I might be mistaken about that. But it's just Corey and Matt. If anyone else is in the Players Club, I, I don't know about it. Um, so it's not like you're able to kind of break that parity. And if the purpose of it is to ensure that the same people show up under coverage all the time... It's, it's just not that necessary, and there's other ways to incentivize. Rob, your point about the Planeswalker points is well taken. There's not really much reason to accumulate them, given the absence of buys. Good, they're stupid. I'm so sick of Planeswalker points. Like, we, we don't need them. Tying the competitive scene to Planeswalker points isn't beneficial. They should be gateways to uh promo mailers i'm sure you guys remember the old system of promo cards where just random cards would show up in your mailbox from time to time it's weird i'm sure they discontinued that because of cost and because it was a little uh a little bit of an overwhelming undertaking but there's other incentives you can give to players rather than things which directly impact um tournament results and and tournament equality uh it just seems like it's something that's ready to go, and I'm not just saying that because I'm usually on like the bad end of things. Like There was a time when I had three buys via DCI rating, and I still argue that DCI rating needed to go as a system of qualification, and um, you know, used to be able to qualify for Pro Tours off DCI rating. That was a horrible system. But I benefited from it a ton of times by having three buys at various GPs. I couldn't play any Magic outside of GPs because I was just locked out, and I couldn't put my you know, I couldn't put my DCI ranking at risk, but, but still, it was like, I, I don't know. It just doesn't, it doesn't make a lot of sense to keep doing this. I hope that things change, and I really like that um, I see a lot of Platinum Pros getting behind it, because they're the ones who are kind of benefiting right now. And the fact that they're like, okay, look, for the health of this game, this doesn't make a lot of sense, says a lot it speaks to the viability of buys in the future. And uh, I hope we see some changes soon. Cause it's good that the ball finally got rolling on this stuff.
1: That's terrible. Those first three rounds
3: are just, or I mean, at least the first two rounds are just like, so they're going to take so long. <laughs> no, day one, it's going to take so long. How much
4: time is it really adding
3: to the end of a round? In like an 1100 person event, at least 60% of the people have one buy. I,
4: I think that's reasonable, yeah. yeah. <laughs> but they still have to play the round to completion, and if just one of those 400 games goes over, like, all you're doing is amplifying the odds a little bit of someone is going to have an extra long game because of a judge call. But it's not a guarantee that the round goes longer just because more people are participating.
3: It's, no, it's not a guarantee. It's just, yeah, the likelihood is, you know... I, so I, just... I bet, like, the
4: per-person ad, like, the effect of adding 600 people to a round is probably, like, an average of plus three minutes. Honestly, it, it's not that impactful. I'm sure there's,
3: prob- there's probably a judge that can, that can settle this for yeah, us. Yeah, I, I mean, I, I, between, hope that is the, I, I hope
4: that is the type of stat that they keep track of because that allows them to, you know, to, to move with more clarity on this issue. I've never seen that stat anywhere, but I, I can't think it's that impactful. Like, you know, I've, I've played... Hundred-person tournaments that go twenty minutes over every single time. Like it's it's just it's more determined by uh, the format and kind of the staff running the event it has a lot more to do with it. Way more than the number of players participating. To a certain point, obviously, there's a large difference between twenty players and thousand players. But once you cross the threshold yeah, that, of like fair. once you cross the threshold of like three hundred players, I think there's a lot of similarities in, in time of the round, regardless. So. so you think it's a wash there? I'm not saying it's a wash. I think there is an impact, but I think it's so small that it's, it's not like,
3: it's, it's not not worth getting sleep in special is is definitely. I feel like an impact. I wanna I wanna fight against. That's uh, that's a rough beating. I know. at eight o'clock on a
4: Saturday. I'm I'm not disputing that. But instead, why don't we <laughs> modernize our tournament uh, systems? Why don't we always have you know automated deck reg and deck reg the night before and
3: yeah, yeah, I think this is coming. I think this stuff is coming. I mean, that that'll definitely speed up the the process like uh, limited gps are still going to be a disaster until WotC figures out how to make a gp sealed pack that has your deck list in it but um we won't go there <laughs> just yet. all of like, this
4: stuff all of the stuff together should be steps towards modernizing and that that's the thing is that this system feels like a relic of the past and in conjunction with these new steps um you know greater access to uh, you know just just good infrastructure good ways to submit deck lists good ways to get the players meeting going, pairings on your phone so you don't spend 20 minutes pushing through a huge crowd to get to the pairings mm-hmm. board. Mm-hmm. All these things working in concert should be what's moving the pace of the game forward, and, get, and not the fact that there's some buys in the early round. Like that's well, not what, what if the they just reset on.
3: breakers on day two?
4: I think that's an interesting approach, and uh, it's better.
3: It's like it better. eliminates all these feel-bad. You still need yeah. to do as good as you were going to do, um, but you're also still incentivized for playing a lot of Magic throughout the year. And if you're good throughout the year, you, like, have a better chance to make day two, right? You, I mean, it's not like people that were going to get two buys, they already have a very good chance of making day two, right? All getting two buys does is that you have a 0% variance of just, like, getting slapped in round one and round two, right, by, by your deck. It's part and of it's- magic,
4: though. I mean, I, <laughs> I, I've lost many round ones and round twos, and it's, it's not like... The average Magic player is much better these days, and there's very few rounds I sit down to at a GP where I'm like, my opponent never had any chance in this match whatsoever. Like, things could have broken one way or another. If I missed this land drop, if I mulliganed one more time. Like, it, players are, are not disqualified on play skill as often as they used to be. Um, on deck selection, that happens more often. <laughs> um, but on play skill, it's, it's, it's not like what it used to be at all, where you just see someone do the wrong thing every single turn of a game. There's way less of that. And, you know, as play skill gets closer to parity, I'd, I'd like to see kind of your preordained tournament outcome getting closer to parity too, and everyone just starting on a le- level playing field.
3: It's interesting. I mean, so to your point about uh, feeling like you already won the match when you sat down... I've only had this happen to me once, and it was at a limited tournament. Um, Like, Theros block sealed, I think. And my opponent, uh, after we shuffled up and presented and then, like, cut, he put his deck in the middle of the table. Like, just, like, right in the middle of the playmat. And I was like, this was, like, round six. I was like, I feel like I'm in control of my fate here. (laughs) That was the only time where I was, like, I have to win. The deck is in the middle of the table. I need to do this. It's not just if I lose, <clears throat> but anyways yeah i like I, I don't think it's a big impact either way, but I would rather keep buys and reset breakers on day two than than lose them but it's 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 an interesting discussion I think it's a
0: really interesting discussion of of many th- different things that you can do and uh think I felt the same, like, what Brian talked about. I, for the longest time, I couldn't, even without too many buys, I just could never miss day two. I would day two, like, almost all the time and felt like the first two rounds were usually <laughs> virtual buys. But except for my last, last GP where I got slapped, where I brought blue, blue-white copter, blue-white flash my deck, and faced a mirror. And the opponent was relatively competent and smashed me so um i think maybe maybe, i haven't played enough gps to know if things have changed like like brian said but but i'll take his word of course um
1: i do wonder like what if magic grows to a point where there's like for these regular gps if it hasn't
0: been trending that way but if there's like a lot lots of players like way more uh than expected what do you think the best way to handle it would be? Would it to be like really to split um, the tournament into two tournaments? Do you ever see, like, I guess it's not feasible for a lot of us, where um, they would make Friday part of the main event to stretch it a bit longer? Do you ever see that type of stuff, uh, Brian?
4: Friday's a no go. They, they lose half their participants if
1: they start putting Fridays in the mix. Um... What's
4: the answer if tournaments get huge? I don't know. They're, I mean, they're not right now. That's, that's what I'd say to that. They're trending down. They're trending way down, actually. Um, so I don't think that's the issue we need to be concerning ourselves with at this juncture. Um, if they do start getting huge again, you talk about running two flights at once, I think, is you know, having, having split GPs is, is one answer. Um, other potential answers, uh, higher entry fees. That's always on the table. At, at some point people are gonna be priced out and be like, all right, I'm not doing this anymore. Um, we've already shown that we have no idea where that point is because people are happily paying hundreds of dollars uh, for these silly VIP packages and things like that. So um, yeah, I don't, I don't know, but I, I wouldn't focus on that for the time being. It's not a problem we're dealing with. We, whatever reason things are trending down maybe that is the effect of these higher price points maybe i'm understating its impact because you know attendance has steadily been trending down for a while now um so yeah i'm just passing this question for now i don't think it's something we have to concern ourselves with i think you you've been
0: always the proponent of the of the baller gp of a hundred dollar i i kind of look forward to that
4: I oh, uh, just want a great happens. experience. Like, I'm willing to pay lots of money to be, like, comfortable and play Magic in a recliner or something like that. So if it, if it costs two or $300 for entry fee and the prize support is way better, I'd be on board with that. But I, I understand that's probably not a good thing for the health of the game. So I'll give you a password. This is one idea you don't have to co-opt from us. You can just let this one slide by. Maybe in the future we can come back and, and talk about this one.
0: But I can't... I would love it, but I just can't see like the prize structure changing much. Would just be paying for we wouldn't be paying for like a bigger prize pool. Like all of it would just go into recliners and stuff like that. Um, I do want to like for the last round, uh, Rob. Do you know if there's a reason why they they pair people uh, via highest to lowest tiebreakers? Like, if wouldn't it force more people to play if the last
1: round was also
0: sort of random?
1: Yeah, it, it it would,
3: um, but it would be – yeah, so they do it so that if you play against very good people – not very good people. If you play against people who did well and you also won, then you're going to sit near the top of the standings, right? And that gives you a higher likelihood of being able to draw into top eight, which is really like – because there's this huge cutoff to top eight and it's not just like, oh, the tournament's over after 15 rounds. Like, where did everyone end up? prize down and call it a day then you like have this huge incentive for being having good breakers and being able to draw and just making top eight right because then like everything resets and you like get paid off very heavily for being in that bucket um whereas like if you just like paired random you would have people with like very the possibility of people with very different incentives like getting paired against each other like you have a guy that's like first playing against someone who like can't make top eight, right? They're, like, at the bottom. <laughs> they're they're at the bottom of the rank, and it's, like, what's going to happen now, right? Like, is that guy going to play and try and get top 16? So now they're both in top 16, and, like, no one makes top eight? Or is he just, like, going to draw and, like, draw himself into a, a guaranteed top 32? Whereas, like, if he were to play the person that is above or below him, they both have the same incentive, right? Like, if I win, I'm going to be top 16. If I lose, I'm going to be top 64, or whatever, right? And it's just, like, it, it simplifies, like, that, that decision, I, I think. Um, yeah, it would be weird. I, Wizards tried to muck with this stuff a bunch, and I don't think they've had any success <laughs> with changing just, like, pairing straight top to bottom uh, in, in the last round. I think it's it just, like, makes the most sense and is the less contentious and at uh, least awkward moments between players and stuff like that as well. But if they got rid of uh, draws, then... Yeah, I could see them doing that because YOLO, it's it's an open market at that point. <laughs> I
0: I mean I feel like this guy would feel less robbed if I guess all the other players were playing, I guess, and, and then he lost, but because they were able to just lock in and, and play one less like they already played less magic because they had buys and now they, they were able to draw in, I guess he would feel uh less robbed as as someone that didn't have buys. Uh, I was going to bring up the, the concept that uh, they were only doing... the. I, I wonder if this is true, though, Brian, the, the fact that they introduced buys because uh, it's a high-variance game and to keep the names, to be able to build narratives and build stars and build these stories of specific players, they have to um, give them these advantages. Um, do you think that's actually one of the reasons they did that? Or I,
4: I don't know where I got that from. I've always assumed that's the reason, and I feel like I have a basis for that. But I, I couldn't tell you where, where that basis lies or if I'm not just making it up in my head. I, maybe that's a little like Star City gave its justification when they started the, the open series. Um, but I don't know. I, I mean, it seems like common sense to me. Like, that's definitely one of the reasons why you'd want to go about doing it. Um, but I, I, I'll admit I could be totally off base here, and that's not their purpose in doing so. It certainly seems like it to me, though. I, I can't. I mean, like, are you trying to say you want to give them a competitive advantage? Well, what's the reason for giving them a competitive advantage? Like, that doesn't benefit your game um, by any, like, commercial standard. Um, it, it just seems to me like that's the only justification that really makes any sense.
1: Well, we'll leave the talk um, to that.
0: Um, I think we're, we're we're nearing the end of the show before I, I move on to, to Rob's last rant. Maybe we can get through um, our quick thoughts on a few Exelon cards that we expect to maybe, maybe, hopefully have an impact. So I'm just going to go through like maybe two, three of these and, and get your thoughts on them. So first one, um, I'm just going to pick the ones that, that have been trending on Reddit today. So a lot of the fresher ones. Uh, Sanctum Seeker, double black, 2 colorless, 3-4 uh, Vampire Knight. Whenever a vampire you control attack, each opponent loses 1 life and you gain 1 life. Exciting, Rob?
3: <laughs> it's like... almost Hellrider. <laughs> um, I, yeah, I think this card might actually see play if Shadows wasn't rotating. Because like, you could... Go like Olivia into this, and it actually is a uh, Hell Rider, which would be um, maybe maybe enough to push like Black Red Vampires into the spotlight. But as it stands, like I, I don't I don't think this this card's going to see is going to do anything right now. I think maybe if when Rivals comes out, if they push the vampires theme a little harder, or like if we see some other cards that are you know pushing the vampires theme harder, then it's it's definitely like. If Vampires is a deck, this card will be in it almost assuredly, but it doesn't look like it's a deck uh, right now. But it's, it's not too far off. I mean, just needs like a Dread Wanderer Vampire and <laughs> and then you might see something interesting happen there. Okay.
0: Yeah, the first card I thought of was, was Hellrider. Um, Mark Rosewater like, revealed Savage Stomp today. Um, two colorless, one green. Sorcery. Savage Stomp costs two less. To cast if it targets a Dinosaur you control. Put a plus one, plus one counter. On target creature you control. And that creature fights target creature you don't control. So basically, uh, one of these fight effects uh, that we've seen a lot. Hunt the weak and stuff like that. Um, but for one green, if it's a Dinosaur, I assume... Am I wrong, guys, if this is probably just going to stay in limited table? Or could we see some Dino... Aggressive Dino Dag going on? Could this will be my, card.
3: this will be my most drafted uncommon. I'm almost sure of it.
0: <laughs> oh yeah, you're right. You're right, Brian. Uh, we've seen this type of card in sideboards in, in those creature on creature matches, right?
4: Yep. Yeah, that's that's where at home. If it has a home in constructed, that's where it'll lie. Um, you know, it'll be good in the dinosaur mirror. Getting your Rip your raptor to kill their Rip Draw raptor is a really nice effect. Um, but these cards are a little fragile for, for Constructed most of the time. Um, this one's no different. I mean, you know, it's, it's amped up mode. It's, it's still just a, a pretty standard prey upon with a little bonus.
3: Um, Isn't yeah. it good with Enrage, though, right? Like, if there's yeah. something... No, no, it's good. It, if, there's, it could, if there's, like, a Thunder... What was it? Thunder Kite Hell Charger? I don't know. Thunder of our hell Kite? No, no. There was like a four mana three four mana four four dragon from like uh cons block. Um like Dragons of Shark Here, I think. It's like whenever you target it with a spell, you could deal three damage to something. Yeah. If there's like one that's like that, it's like a four mana four-four, and it has like enrage deal three damage to a target, then like a card like this starts to be Quite a bit more uh, more interesting to me, but like I don't see, yeah, like I don't see the incentive just yet. But it's it's not too far off. I mean, it's just yeah. one real sweet Dino away.
4: <laughs> Depends a lot on context, and the context isn't there yet, so we'll have to hold on it. Maybe there's a mentor Dino, a seeker of the way Dino. <laughs> uh,
0: another card, one of the more unique ones to come out, is Conqueror's Galleon, a uh, vehicle for colorless it's 210, it's for the crew, but whatever it attacks, exile it at the end of combat, then return it to the battlefield, transformed under your control. So it's a 210 that then transforms into a land that taps for colorless, that also has the ability to tap, draw a card, then discard a card, loot, tap four, tap the land, draw a card, and tap six and then tap the land, return target card from your graveyard to your hand. Man, my brain is just trying to figure out when
3: I want to turn. Like, this is the most unique effect I've seen in a while. Uh, Rob? I don't think this card is playable. Like, Crew 4 is, like, not... Like, that's a a real cost, right? Like, part of Kieran puts major restrictions on your deck, and your Planeswalkers can even crew it, right? And it's only Crew 3. So, like, this is a a big deal at Crew 4. A braid just blows this thing up real easily and like even when you flip it like have you done it like yeah you ran to mana sort of right (laughs) but like if this if they say like it was just the, the front side right and it was like land it was zero to cast but you couldn't play it like sarah's avenger right like you can't play it until turn five like would you even play that card as a land i mean it would make some decks but it's not an auto include so the fact that you have to pay for mana the turn before and you have to crew it, and it's got to survive through combat. <laughs> yeah, I don't know. I'd be very surprised if it's made its way
1: into constructed decks. <laughs> I guess. I guess this is maybe this
0: is one of those cards where you got to figure out like if it's fast enough for uh, limited, where we've seen a lot of these cards, these these card advantage type spells that have been too slow in certain formats, like. Uh, uh, cha- uh what's it called the tome where you have to like tap four and tap it to draw a card uh, H- chain- yeah. yeah like where i used to think it was a bomb like a wa- a long time ago and then when it was reprinted in a more recent set where the format was really aggressive it didn't seem that playable anymore where you'd have to basically invest eight mana to go up a card uh and ta- like tap it twice And maybe a question here is, like, is this, like, even good enough in Limited? Uh, Brian, what are your thoughts, uh, both
4: Constructed and Limited, on this? Not even close to Constructed, and I think it's probably even bad in Limited. It just doesn't seem that good. The payoff, really, is I mean, you invest a ton into it. The format has to be super, 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 super slow for this to be a hugely impactful card in Limited. Um, And then it makes sense. It would be... A dominating card for sure, but the other themes I see don't really fit with that. I I, I don't know. I mean, this this doesn't seem like it's doing enough for me. And like like I said, it's not even close in constructed. There's no chance this is constructed play. Um, And I don't even know if it'll if it's a card you want in your limited deck.
3: Yeah, unlikely. Crew four was like such a beating,
4: even in in Kaladesh, where they're and you don't get you don't get any like offense from it. Like you just kind of like like you have to be ahead on board. Give up that lead you had to now get like some card advantage in the late game. I don't, I don't know. I don't, I don't see this at all. And like, you know, you want the backside in a control ish kind of deck, but you still have to muster crew four. Like, it, it's very difficult both to turn this on and to then get value out of the backside. So I, it could be that like I'm really underestimating the value of sli- flipping one of these into a land. Um, but I don't think so. I don't think this card's particularly good.
3: Thaumatic Compass gets me excited though.
4: Yeah, that card's like a version of this mechanic done right. That is, that is a much more powerful effect than this.
3: I like that the trigger is just like on your end step, if condition is met, transform, and not like you have to pay three mana tap and activate it, and then if condition is met at your end step or whatever. Um, so it's just like in the late game, it's just like two mana, boom, flip, Mace <laughs> of Fist, like, attached for mana. <laughs> So, yeah, I, I don't know, I, I, I think that, um, I, I wonder, like, th- this is kind of, like, pretty good for the Approach decks, right? Like, they, they want to hit their land drops, and it's, like, gets just very annoying when you're just trying to stall out the next, whatever, three or four turns, right? Because you're just trying to draw your, your second copy, or your second iteration of Approach, so, kind of. I see
4: some play there, yeah, I mean, usually the Approach deck spends its first, like, It's two and three mana turns cycling, right? Or possibly countering, but often cycling. So it's a little awkward to give up your sensor turn. Like, that's a pretty big point of pressure for the approach deck. Um, But, you know, the approach deck could certainly change form and and look a little different. and, And this is a nice effect in that deck, to be sure. So
3: Yeah, maybe it's not everywhere in the main. I can see this being just like the Mirror Breaker, though. Yeah,
4: well, the problem is that, like, attacking is never good in the mirror, so... Oh, just, like, like
3: just getting your land,
4: just, like, getting lands, though. Just getting extra lands, yeah, it could be good enough. I mean, it, then it has to be better than something like Sunset Pyramid, which is, like, kind of similar. Yeah, uh, that's fair.
3: So, That'd I, don't, be I don't know.
4: Yeah.
3: I just love Maze of Vith, maybe.
4: <laughs> I think it's close. I, I, it's, it's, it, w- it would be on my radar. I wouldn't dismiss it out of hand.
1: Are you
0: excited about the return of Lightning Strike, Rob? Yes.
3: We're losing <laughs> Incendiary Flow, right? I think.
0: Uh, I think
3: it was in. Yeah, we are. We are. I think, I I think
0: a lot of comments I'm seeing that, that to be the case.
3: Yeah, so, I mean, I'm not sure what the red deck looks like. It it keeps everything except for Falcon Wrath uh, And if you're, like, you know, feeling real aggro, some people were playing. The werewolf i don't know i forget what it was called but the one one haste werewolf like turns into a menace that's uh, two two yeah I messenger so like those cards were like when i was playing one red those are cards i cut in a lot of sideboard games anyways where i just like would keep in bomek couriers and the the shocks and then maybe some magma sprays if, I, if i'm in an anchor mirror or whatever so maybe there's another sweet red one drop that takes its place maybe not and if not, then you're probably just looking at like a twenty five land mono red deck that has like, you know, the Hazarets, the Chandra's, and, and some amount of Glory bringers in the main. And in well, that deck, Soulscar
4: Mage too. Like that hasn't. Been oh, like Soulscar
3: Mage. Oh, you know, Lightning Strike is just so much better uh, with Soulscar Mage, yeah, yep. than than flow. So yeah, I guess you're just playing. Yeah, you're probably just playing four Soulscar Mage, and I think the red decks is like a lot happier about that. To be honest, like. That's deck's going to be real. <laughs> I guess maybe is not going down. I sold mine in hopes that it was not going to be $50 anymore. <laughs> I could get back in cheap. But yeah, maybe it just continues to go up. card's going to be uh, real good. So is Hazard.
4: Yeah, I'm a little concerned that uh, Red is just going to squeeze out any kind of new aggro deck, because it, it didn't lose anything. It may have gotten better with the addition of Lightning Strike. I have some like nifty aggro ideas I'm kind of putting together, but they might look kind of silly in the face of just getting mono-redded again. So, yeah, it's like uh, a real
3: red deck wins, like mono-red sly type of like, just like a very um, classic build, if you will.
4: <laughs> yeah. Yeah, for sure. And I, I think that, you know, red remaining powerful, um, it, it won't catch us by surprise this time. It'll certainly be like public enemy number one, which means like, you might get it out, and you need to look at other things for your mono-red deck your aggressive deck to be doing which is why i kind of like blue red right now um but or possibly even some kind of blue black aggro deck but uh we're gonna need to see some mana fixing for the blue red deck to come to fruition uh the man is really bad in that deck right now so i don't know i, I don't know what's going to happen i i don't want aggro decks to be squeezed out it's kind of disappointing if that aspect of the format is just not worth exploring, because Mono Red's still there, and you're not going to top it anyway, so why bother?
1: Mm -hmm. Right.
0: We're going to finish the topic with classic Rob Lombardi uh, rant, though. I don't think it's as... uh not going to like this as much as a main board and side deck, but uh, (laughs) it'll have to do. It's a little closer to the heart. (laughs) This is a a lot more serious topic, although... uh, I guess mainboard was really serious, (laughs) how much it irritated Rob. Uh, This one has to do with uh, Brian DeMars' article called A Critique of Gamer Language, something that he wrote last week. And I'm I'm just going to let Rob take it away, but uh, in the article, he talks about the three things that need to be removed from gaming languages. Uh, One, rape. Two, go kill yourself. Three, illnesses. Um, and example, I, I was reading it to see what, what he meant by illness and, and stuff like this, hand, this hand is cancer or AIDS and stuff like that. So really trying to eliminate, he thinks we should eliminate this type of language in the game. And we, we see a lot of initial, even in, in the Facebook comments, which can, in the world of comments could be very negative. We, we have a few people that wholeheartedly agree with, with, uh, Brian's, uh, sentiments and, and his push to eliminate this type of language. Um, does our friend Robin Barney agree with his article?
3: Yeah. So I'll, I guess I'll start off with saying like, I, I think that uh, Brian DeMar's article is very well thought out and well written. And I agree with his points completely. Right. That, that My problem is not with what he's trying to do. My problem is with, I guess the response of people <laughs> uh, commenting on his article. Right. Um, so I think he did it in a very well. and like, well thought of in a very progressive way where it's like, hey, you know, like, I've noticed that there is this kind of issue in the community where we've now moved to a spot where, like, these three things are, like, not, you know, politically correct for, for public use anymore, right? It's like, yeah, that, that's accurate, right? Like, 10 years ago, there were there were different terms, right? Like, if you grew up in the 80s, like, you were in high school, like, people would say, things are gay or things are retarded just like off the cuff that that was just that was the slang at the time (laughs) and then it became not okay to to do that right and it's not like the people that were using that language uh at the time like really meant any harm by it it was just common tongue to do it and that's what people were saying right and then eventually you kind of like grow out of that phase and you realize oh yeah like this might actually affect people in a negative way that, like, I, I don't really intend to be doing that when I say it, but it is. So I'm going to, like, try and change the way that, you know, I describe things. And, like, even for me to this day, I have to, like, sometimes I have to think very hard about, like, not just, like, falling back to, like, one of these high school words that was just, like, very, very commonplace for me to use, right? Where it's just, like, someone asked me a question, and I, I was, like, you know, I have to think about my response a little more. Because like you definitely you're trying very much not to do that right so I guess what I'm trying to say is that in in the responses, people are just like trying to like hang and like ban anyone that like uses these language in like an LGS or something like that and my point is really that like that's not going to get you to the future that that you seek, right like you need to have a much more progressive discussion with these people because they don't A, they don't think that they're doing anything wrong and they don't think that they're harming anyone, right? Because it's like, you're saying this thing that's offending me and they're like, well, I'm not, my intent is not to offend you. So like, this is your problem and not my problem. And if you like, just come back at them with like, well, you know, this is how it's going to be and everything's like written in stone. So like, just get out of our our store. Then you're creating an unsafe environment for us. Then, you know, they're going to get defensive and it's going to get... It's going to get worse, right? So, like, really the way to, like, you know, educate these people is to really, like, show them why you feel it's not okay. And you see a lot of people complain about, like, oh, some person, like, used this phrase. Like, I, I see it on Twitter all the time, and it, like, very much exploded when this article was written, where it's like, yeah, people use these phrases all the time, and it just, like, aggravates me. It's like, yeah, then go and, and, and tell them, right? Like, it's just like a re-education process. Because those, those people, for the most, like, okay... Some of those people are definitely dicks, right and they're using it to be offensive. <laughs> those people you're not going to change their mind, and those people should be removed <laughs> from the community. But like a, a large portion of those people do not mean to offend anyone when using that language, and they just they need to understand why it's not okay and not just be told like that they're being offensive because that's going to put them on a defensive, and that's like just it's not going to progress well, right? and you just end up living in your 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 box or your silo more um and those people aren't going to change it's not going to create a a more progressive or better society and like 10 years from now we're going to have this discussion again about other terms which people are using today which everyone thinks is fine and is not going to be correct a decade from now and there's going to be a whole new generation of people that need re-education on like what is considered politically acceptable or politically correct and acceptable for public use right so i don't know just like tone it down on trying to just like eliminate these people from your circle and like i I agree that like they they may be aggravating you with their their words but for the most part i mean i I was one of these people it took like a very very long time for me not to use the language i was using it was i'm sure that all of us in the 80s are, are very much in the same boat and it's not the intent so when i see it i'm like i think of myself at like 17 were like, what would seventeen-year-old Rob would have done if he saw these type of comments about what he was saying? It was like, it would have not been, <laughs> it would have not been a very constructive discussion. I, I can assure you that. And and kids are worse these days. <laughs> they're more they're more contentious, so it's going to be even more aggressive conversation the way that it's being done. But um, Brian had a really good point when we were kind of talking about this pre-show about how things are just like so polarized and in politics and worldviews and stuff that like people feel the need to tailor the strongest stance. And I think this is like, not, this is just not a productive thing, right? Like the magic community is supposed to be a place where people are, we're mostly more progressive than, than a lot of other social circles. Right. So I don't think it should be any different for being accepting of people changing their negative habits as well as like, you know, people that are, are different or, or more progressive on like an, any other spectrum uh, of life for that matter. So yeah, I don't know. That's where my thoughts are on it. Please feel free to flame me on Twitter. <laughs> Fully expecting to get, uh, to get some of that, but um, yeah, I don't know. It's, it's just like a, it's, it's a weird topic, and I think people are, are going up, going about it in a very uh, deconstructive way,
1: and I don't think that anyone's going to get what they want when that happens. <laughs> GG's. I've- uh,
0: The the world has definitely changed uh, a lot. And my world, I've progressed myself a lot from my high school years. And part of it has been the magic community, Rob. Um, Absolutely. Yeah, absolutely. uh, The magic community is where I've been able to meet more people. So I've been able to meet uh, people that are gay, people that are transsexual. Just to to meet more and more people. And that has allowed me to completely change and and see how... why my my language uh, can sometimes eat a bit of work, and but I'm I'm still very much guilty of stuff like you know, I saying stuff like I just got murdered, I just got killed at something, and definitely have most recently, I think it was this past month in like a chat in a group chat with Vince in it, I I, I definitely said something that like <laughs> gay or something, and uh, obviously did not. <laughs> Mean it that way at all? It meant no harm, but it just like some of like old habits, like you said.
3: Absolutely, I don't know if Brian's camera's frozen or if we actually put him to sleep.
1: <laughs> Brian, Brian, <laughs> your take. Um, sorry, Vince. I'm sorry.
0: I, I, I didn't apologize before. If you're listening, okay. I love you, Vince.
4: <laughs> I I don't I don't know how I want to discuss this issue. I agree that. I just don't have a lot of patience for like people being made to feel uncomfortable around magic because it's such an important outlet. Um, I think I, I know what Rob is trying to say. And to some extent I do see where he's coming from, but you have to understand that this is an article. I, I, please correct me if I'm wrong. I, I think Brian's American, correct? I'm pretty sure, yes. Yeah, I'm pretty
1: sure. Okay.
4: So the American psyche right now, especially among progressives, is like kind of shattered. And we're afraid here. Like our political political regime has changed dramatically. There's seriously crazy things going on in our country. You know, the types of people coming to light are the people we fought for many years to cast out of society and, and to say there's no place for this. So we're a little on edge right now and kind of there there is this growing honestly young internet based kind of rebellion against what they see as political correctness what i see as being a decent human and thinking about you know the feelings of my fellow man and and people are rebelling against it right now and it's it's scary for us and i think that as you know someone who self identifies as a progressive and like wants to affect social change i am torn between doing what rob says and being understanding because i made these same mistakes when i was younger i I used language that i'm embarrassed to admit i use now and uh you know without ever thinking about the consequences of my words um and i'm torn between taking a moderate stance and being like look i did the same thing when i was young." It really is, is directly hurtful to other people, people in this room, people who you might even consider your friends and just don't have, you know, they, they don't want to be involved in the conversation. So they haven't told you themselves, but, but you're hurting them right now. And, and that's a, a difficult thing for some people to understand. And I want to give them the leash to come to that conclusion on their own. And I also want to be like, shut up. There's no place for this. And I'm not having it because these people deal with so much crap and you're not going to contribute to it in my presence. Like, it's just not happening. And, you know, to be militant about it or to be, I don't, I don't want to say, you're not being accepting, you're not condoning, but you're, you're willing to let people kind of come to this conclusion on their own. Well, a lot of people are coming to opposite conclusions now. And, and they're not ever going to temper their language and they're going to embrace hate speech and embrace hate we're just we're seeing it happen here so I, I think that there's a level of discomfort a level of fear in the american psyche right now uh, i think you know the canadian political landscape is a little bit more stable than our own uh, a little bit yeah i mean all governments have their issues but ours is just batshit crazy so um i i i don't know I see both sides of the issue as I think like kind of my career and, and my training as a lawyer encourages me to do to, to think about I mean the one side I don't see is continuing to speak like this and not caring how it affects people. And certainly Rob is not advocating that whatsoever. No. no that's no. that's the internet trolls on on you know, the message board saying that I'm gonna talk like this forever and I, I go to magic tournaments to escape PC culture and other just complete nonsense. Um, that's that's not where I'm falling. Where I'm falling is: should I punch you in the face for talking like this, or do I let you come to your own conclusions and understand why it's it's wrong to use these kind of terms? And uh, you know, I, I think that some of the terms, uh, one of the terms I wouldn't say it's about, but some of the other ones are a little bit further down on kind of the scale of things we need to make sure are, are not said in the gaming vernacular. And and some I agree should be completely eliminated right now. Um, but I, I wish I had the right answer on how to approach this problem. I think, honestly, the best thing you can always do is, is talk about it, have conversations about it, because, you know, it, it, not to paint myself in this light, because I, I hope that I'm, I hope that no one's here looking up to me. But if someone I looked up to when I was younger <laughs> had a conversation like this in my purview, and I could, I could see someone who I respected and who I thought was intelligent saying some of these things, I'd be like, hmm, you know, I never really thought about that before. I, I hope that when fans of Magic players see these conversations come up, they have the same response, and they go, oh, you know, here's a, a really bright person who I, I respect saying some of these things. Why am I talking like this? Like, wh- why have I decided this is okay? And, and they very clearly think it isn't. Um, so. You know, I I think that as long as we're having conversation, we're helping to move the discourse forward. And that's really what was great about Brian's piece, is it moved moved the discussion forward. Um, But I I don't have the answers. I mean, these are complex issues, complex times. Um, But think about it. I guess that's what I would say. Think about it. Sit down. Just actually think about your language. And, you know, do you want to be the type of person that makes someone else's experience worse? Or do you want to be someone who people want to be around and you know maybe your other friends who you know really like off-color jokes and you know kind of making humor of other people want to be around you but the vast majority of this community is is not going to want to be around you speaking like that i, I can promise you that i mean maybe you happen to find, find a little hole of the magic community where this stuff is acceptable but at large it's it's very clearly not and uh you know Think about your language and and think about what you're doing. And I I don't see how you actually take time to consider and come to a conclusion that it's okay for me to make other people not enjoy their time around Magic, because what are you here for? Like, there's just no reason to be participating in this community if you're actively trying to impede other people's, you know, enjoyment of the game. I I don't know. I'm happy to talk about this more. It is something um, that I do care about. A lot about but it, it, it's hard to talk about in this format i think i think it's better served by direct conversation and just you know i've I, i've had many discussions on car rides to magic tournaments about this type of stuff and i have a very good friend who was the worst he just like the worst language like no idea and he's he is a good person but he's an idiot <laughs> like he just doesn't understand why these things matter and he's turned the corner he honestly has and I, I don't know what set off the light bulb, but, um, you know, over many, many car rides to PTQs and various discussions, I could see the light starting to come on in his head. And it is possible to affect change. So don't give up on
1: that. Most, uh, wow.
3: I feel like we've gone through <laughs> we this We went deep. Oh. We went deep, man. So uh, I just one point. I think that uh, the answer lies somewhere in between Brian's two uh, default responses, (laughs) which is eliminate the contention or let them go on being who they are or coming to their own conclusion. Uh, I think that the answer is to really start a dialogue with the offender, if you will, like at the the point of uh, offense, right? And that's when it's the most awkward for them. Because they have to try and defend something uh, in person to someone, like, to their face, where they know that they're not, like, it's very hard to to defend that, right? And, like, when, I think that's going to cause the most amount of change. So, like, uh, if you see that, I think you just need to be vigilant about um, starting that conversation. You need to be brave about doing that you know, in, in an open form and kind of be the one that's like, Hey, you know, uh, John, that's not cool. Or Doug, you know, that's not, <laughs> you know, that, 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 could offend someone in, in this way or whatever. Right. And, and I think the silence that those people get, even if like no one's laughing, they, they still don't understand that it wasn't okay. Right. And if you just go home and complain about it, you're not, you're not doing anyone a, a favor about it. Right. So you just kind of like need to to speak up. And the second point, uh, which is completely unrelated is I accidentally pinned Frank Richard <laughs> in the chat. So sorry Frankie, I didn't I didn't mean to do that. It <laughs> I, didn't think, an accident. I didn't think it was an accident. <laughs> um I don't know like my uh YouTube like console had like a very weird uh overlay and instead of, like, the, like, block, whatever, like, all the text options you have when you click on someone's name, it was just, like, a bunch of icons, and it wasn't going away, so I was, like, clicking to make it go away, and I blocked him, and um, I didn't realize that, like, my chat was actually just frozen for the last hour, so he's just, like, straight up blocked since, like, I don't know, probably 9.30 or something like that. (laughs) This is so terrible for me
4: because... I has been typing away over there, too, like, just...
3: Yeah, I, I'm looking through the chat, and I see just, like, a bunch of messages deleted by Rob.
0: <laughs> Oops. This is terrible for me, Rob, because uh, he's a close friend of mine, really good friend, really great guy, but he's been building up this narrative that you don't deserve to be on this show as That's a joke. Like it's so and funny.
3: That's why it's yeah. so funny. <laughs> and now he's straight
0: up, like, bad the guy. <laughs> More
3: it's, it's just great that it... At, it truly was an accident, and it happened to him. That just makes it so much better. Oh, man. Um, and,
0: and with that, uh, to bring it back to the humor side of it, uh, that will be our episode of the week. Um, shouts to everyone that has uh, contributed to, to the First Strike Nation, all our First Strike producers. Um, actually,
1: I'm going to have to up the list because I just changed windows sadly. Um, gonna shout out to Misplaced Ginger, of course, as always, Derek Pite, um, Kyle
0: Smirchick, don't forget, Woodard,
1: don't
0: forget, <laughs> Miss Place Ginger, Matthew Kelly, uh, Adrian murchison Isaiah Carrero. Two shouts, all of you, as usual, for uh, being our producers and supporting the show. Um, and, uh, shout outs to Connor Bryant for being on the show and shout outs to Brian for, uh, mentoring him to his first pro tour birth. I mean, I'm, I'm really excited, uh,
3: to see how he does. We have like a 10% hit rate, right? For people that join the nation. and immediately queue for the tour. <laughs> well, granted, granted he, this was probably,
0: uh, he, deserves all, all the credit cause it was dredge and I don't think we, uh, we guided him towards
3: dredge at all. It was sorry. just like, uh. You know karma. It just he came. He got good karma, and then Moto just hooked him up. That, that that's what happened.
1: Uh, it's Brian's tutel- tutelage, man. Over the
4: years, I will say belief is a powerful ally. And as, <laughs> as we uh, put more and more of the First Strike Nation on the pro tour, I think everyone who comes and joins uh, starts to believe. Hey, if this works for this guy, and he's able to do it, it could work for me too. And that's worth it's a lot. It's, it it's also the truth. the
3: truth, yeah.
4: It is, it the, is truth. the truth. Uh, yeah. and, and that belief is worth a huge amount when it comes down to crunch time and, you know, fighting down those feelings of doubt, like, am I going to be able to do this? You just go, yes, I am going to be able to do this, and yeah, you get exactly. it done. That's worth a lot.
3: Yeah, yeah, no, for sure. Are you uh, playing Nats, Brian, I guess, before we sign off? I when do your Nats? Uh, October. I oh, think. okay, never, never uh, mind. Ours, so, ours is the last one. Ours is... Uh, Carl probably do a plug. If he has also the last coin. It's also it
1: October fourteen, fifteen.
3: 15 Oh, you guys are October as well? Yeah. Yeah, it's, but it's like right after the set, right? It's kind of like where the PT would have been. Ish. I if think
4: Worlds is where the, the PT would have been,
3: right? Doesn't the set come... Okay, I, I
4: think PT it goes like uh, release the, the GP, the team GP, right after release, then Worlds, then Nats, I believe.
0: Yeah, it's pretty sick, uh, because pre-release is already the end of this month, which is September 23, 24, or whatever, and then we have Nats October 14, 15, or around that time, so yeah, it's like right after the set's release. it's kind of crazy.
3: Yeah, so I thought that I was going to be able to avoid getting into Standard right away. Because like the PT is like in November, and I was like, yeah, yeah, whatever, I'll just wait for the format to get solved, and then I'll pick up the best deck and see if it's not garbage and then figure it out from there. So I essentially start my PT testing mid-October. But um I have to do NATS testing now, which is like right after the set comes out, and apparently Brian does as well. So uh I guess that that's gonna be driving most of our September discussion then as soon as the set's available on Moto is all that sweet new standard uh, brewing and results and, and where we see the format moving. So I'm excited to be just like dumping all of that knowledge into the nation. So if you're interested in getting into that car, car can tell you what to do. <laughs> it's like, that's uh, uh, patreon.com slash first
0: strike uh, where we're likely going to have initial builds of uh model red, I assume. And then Vince, as usual, will come out with his wacky, Draft archetype draft card, which may or may not work. And hopefully, Brian comes up with uh, another blue-red brilliance that uh, these guys can tweak. So that's what I look forward to. Uh, anything else? We'll see you guys next Monday. Brian, did you want to say one last word? No,
4: I have nothing to say.
0: Okay. Um, you look awesome, by the way. Uh, <laughs> never. Never lacking in style. Uh, For Brian, Rob, and I, uh, we will see you next episode.